Why study the Psalms? In Luke 24, Jesus claimed that the Psalms are all about him. It's why he referenced the Psalms so many times in his ministry. In fact, the New Testament contains 326 quotes from 115 different Psalms. But what do they mean to us today? Well, we're going to turn our focus in a few minutes toward the Psalms and how they can impact our lives today. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East scholar, author, and conference speaker. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, you know, the new year really is quickly approaching. Before you know it, 2023 will be here, and you have to ask yourself, what do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? Maybe you'd like a reminder to pray. Yeah, that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to land in the book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. The calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, lots to talk about in the news this week from the Middle East. Starting with Israel's election, it's over, but that doesn't mean a new government is in place. Why is it so difficult for a new government to be formed? Yeah, and let's start by saying Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party and his other allies are the presumptive winners. Uh, The coalition they should be able to form will likely be more stable than the coalition in the outgoing government that collapsed. This government will be relatively consistent politically and religiously, while the outgoing one had just too many political, religious, and philosophical differences uh, to be able to hold together long term. Now, having said that, Netanyahu and his allies uh, still have a ways to go to form a government. Here's the hurdles that come up. Israel still remains fractured politically. The Likud party received the largest number of votes, but they still only gathered about a quarter of the seats in the Knesset. That's half the number needed to form a government. And Netanyahu must now negotiate with the smaller parties on the right. Now, he'll have to work hard to hold their expectations and their demands in check. And Netanyahu will also need to work through personality clashes. You know, there are rivalries within these different parties and also some very large egos. Some of his new allies could become potential rivals in future elections. Now, having said all that, here's what will happen over the next few weeks. The official election results will be posted eight days after the election. That's this coming Wednesday. And about two weeks later, the new Knesset will be seated. Israel's president will canvas all the parties uh, that made it into the Knesset anyway to see who they believe would be most able to form a government. The president then gives that individual 28 days to form a government. And if necessary, the person can ask for an additional 14 days. Now, it's during this period when the hard bargaining and horse trading takes place between the main party and all the other potential coalition members. Now, the expectation is that all the potential coalition members won't place too many roadblocks in Netanyahu's way. Having been in the opposition for over a year, these parties want to again take hold of those reins of power. And as a result, hopefully it won't take too long for a new government to be formed. Fascinating. The uh, past few weeks have seen growing lawlessness on both sides in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What's behind the escalating tension, and and can calm be restored? What's it going to take, Charlie? Yeah, this tension is being caused by just a confluence of several elements that all seem to have come together. Uh, One's the growing influence of radicals on both sides. 
parental control is declining, youth on both sides are being influenced by radical messages that appeal to their idealism and their religious zeal. There's also a growing influence from media, but especially social media. Palestinian youth can achieve momentary fame by recording their attacks on social media sites like TikTok. But it's not just youth who are involved. Uh, in one attack this week, a 54-year-old Palestinian tried to run down an Israeli soldier at a checkpoint before being killed. Now, on the Israeli side, there's a growing incitement from far-right elements pushing to take over all the land. Uh, attacks on both Palestinian farmers and Israeli soldiers reveals a very ugly lawlessness on the part of some Israeli settlers. And finally, uh, the growing attempt to influence who's going to replace Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas is also playing a part as Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and other radical groups try to stake their claims to leadership of the Palestinian cause through violent confrontation with Israel. Now, hopefully, all the election rhetoric, which inflamed Israelis on all sides, will now begin to fade, and that's assuming a stable new government can finally be established. And on the Palestinian side, uh, the elimination of the Lion's Den group of radicals in Nablus and the subsequent loosening of Israel's closure there will hopefully start helping that area return to normal. But, John, if recent history has taught us anything, it's that it only takes one unfortunate act of violence to rekindle the conflict all over again. Charlie, I find it rather unsettling. It's one thing, and bad enough, when an established terrorist organization launches a, a bomb or an attack of some kind and, you know, recognized military response does its thing. But when it's in the hands of people, as you say, who are kind of uh, out of control on both sides, that's, that's a whole different scenario. It is. You know, and that's the sad part with social media and other influences and the lack of uh, just social norms and controls. Uh, it's basically radicalized both sides. And you have these individuals who take the cause up for themselves. That's very difficult to spot and stop. That's Middle East expert Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at current events from the week in the Middle East. We uh, had a listener write to ask if we could occasionally report on agriculture in our current events segment. We listened, and three stories recently made the news. We'll try to get them all in here. What's the latest when it comes to agriculture? Yeah, John, three very different stories did pop up that are loosely related to agriculture. Uh, the first is the reappearance of a so-called miracle plant that most thought was extinct. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the plant grew in the area of Libya, but was exported throughout the Middle East. It's known as Silphion or Silphium, and it was highly prized in antiquity for everything from seasoning to perfume to medicine to an aphrodisiac. It was literally eaten into extinction, with ancient records saying Roman Emperor Nero ate the very last piece. But the plant has now been discovered in south-central Turkey. Uh, hopefully, we'll soon know if the ancient stories about Silphion were exaggerated or true. Uh, the second story was about a summit held in Elat in southern Israel that focused in part on aquaculture. Uh, representatives from 25 countries gathered to explore innovative solutions to threats against global food security. These included sustainable methods of fishing plus the production of food from the sea, including algae and seaweed, to help feed the world's population. And the final story focused on research being done in Israel to identify plants that can be grown on the moon and on Mars. Uh, these scientists are working to identify plants that could survive the harsh conditions in space and then be able to come back to life and thrive once they're planted on the moon or on Mars. And experiments already being planned for Israel's Bereshit 2 mission to the moon scheduled to launch in 2025. So agriculture on land, in the sea, and even in space. Uh, there's lots of agricultural innovation that's taking place in both Israel and in the rest of the Middle East. 
Well, step aside, man on the moon, made of cheese. It's agriculture from Israel, apparently. Well, scientists in Israel have discovered a chemical that heals wounds twice as fast as antibiotics. Could this development out of amazing Israel become an alternative to antibiotics? Yeah, you know, we all know the benefits of antibiotics, but we're also starting to understand their limitations as more bacteria develop resistance to those antibiotics. Uh, This study, conducted by a research team at Ben-Gurion University, discovered that diindolamethane, or DIM, works to jam communications between bacteria at an injury site, which helps make a wound heal faster. Now that compound, DIM, is found in vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower. In tests on pig wounds treated with DIM, uh, it took five days for the wound to heal, while wounds treated with the antibiotics took 10 days. Uh, Antibiotics work by killing the layer of bacteria on the wound. A new layer of tissue grows, but the old dead tissue and bacteria remain. DIM works not by killing the bacteria, but by blocking its ability to communicate, which makes it less virulent and more vulnerable to the body's own immune system. As a result, the wound heals faster. Now, the team hopes to have a product on the market for animals within five years. Unfortunately, the review process is more complex when approving a new treatment for humans, so it could take up to a decade or more before the treatment is finally approved for human use. But it's still encouraging to know that there's an antibiotic alternative on the horizon, especially as more bacteria become antibiotic resistant. And for that, we can thank the scientists and researchers at Ben-Gurion University in amazing Israel. Charlie, I'm looking forward to our second segment, Why Study the Psalms. Fascinating conversation. But after that, there are two more on the program. For somebody who's new to the land of the book, uh, describe what we're going to do. Uh, well, in, in segment three, uh, we answer people's questions. They wrote into the land of the book, and if they have a question, we sure try to provide them with an answer to it. And then the final segment is our devotional. In fact, today's devotional is called The Lord of the Flies, and we're heading to uh, Samaria and to Second Kings chapter 1 to see how what we know as a book title actually came from the Bible. Okay, so there's lots to listen for today. And again, up next, Why Study the Psalms? I want to point you to our website. It's thelandandthebook.org. You're always welcome to visit there for information about our guests, about books that Charlie and I have written, all kinds of other great links as well at thelandandthebook.org. Why study the Psalms? If it's been a while since you've been able to answer that question, stick around for more. Does any literature in all the world compare with the book of Psalms? The Greeks have Homer, the Italians Dante, and the British have Shakespeare, but nothing sings like the Psalms. As one writer summed it up, only a Philistine could fail to love the Psalms. Well, if you love the Psalms, you're going to love the conversation coming up. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and before we dive into the Psalms, let's wade out into the waters of outreach toward our Jewish neighbors and coworkers and friends. Here's what I mean. I think we need a drum roll for this next conversation, a drum roll as I ask this audacious, crazy question. What is the fastest way to turn off my Jewish friend to Yeshua? I'm asking that question of Cynthia Stroll, who, along with her husband, Dan Stroll, are part of Olive Tree Congregation in the suburbs of Chicago. What do you think? What's the fastest way to turn off my Jewish friend to Yeshua? I think that coming to a Jewish person with a superior attitude, 
and it could be for a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person, but to have an attitude of, I've got all the answers and you need them, mm. is so off-putting at the least. We don't want to communicate a message of condemnation. We want to communicate a message of grace and love and that God's love for them is real and that he is a holy God and he has certain standards, but he wants us to know him. Yeah, and there's a tension there because... The truth of the matter is, not from ourselves, but from God himself, we have this gift. We have been given this insight that is capital T truth. And yet we can't be obnoxious or arrogant about our presentation of that truth. Right. And I think uh, one of the roadblocks that maybe Jewish people bring to the considering this is their presumption that we are arrogant, know-it-alls, intolerant, uh-huh. um, judgmental. And in Jesus' name, Christians have done pretty heinous things to Jewish people for generations. A lot to think about there in a conversation we've had with Cynthia Stroll, who serves with her husband, Dan, at Olive Tree Congregation in Chicago. Always appreciate your dropping by, Cynthia. Thanks, John. Dr. James Hamilton is professor of biblical theology at Southern Seminary and senior pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church. Before coming to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Hamilton served as assistant professor of biblical studies at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's Houston campus and was the preaching pastor at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. He's written God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment, A Biblical Theology, and God's Indwelling Presence the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testaments. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. You uh, you write, this commentary seeks to interpret the book of Psalms as a book that is a purposefully ordered collection of poems that build on and interpret one another. And of course, that makes sense to me. But I ask, quite honestly, what other way could you or would you interpret the Psalms? Well, I think in our culture, a lot of people encounter the Psalms somewhat haphazardly. We read a psalm here, we hear a sermon on another psalm there, uh, maybe we dip in and find one that we like, but what we don't tend to do is read straight through in sequence from beginning to end Mm. and really discern the sustained development of the characters, the main, the good guy, the bad guys, uh, the promises, and and the conflict that's going on throughout the Psalter. You know, as a young person, I stayed away from the Psalms, all right? I was uncomfortable Mm. with the enormous range of emotion on display. Do you suppose one of God's intentions in giving us this collection called the Psalms is to give us permission to appropriately but honestly express our emotions? I think there's definitely truth in that. And I think that also, you know, whatever the psalmists encounter, they're always turning to the Lord. They're never indicting his goodness. They're never questioning his justice. They're always confident that the Lord is the one to whom they should look. The Lord is the one to whom they should take their problems. And even if they're crying out how long, the presumption still is the bad situation that I'm in right now isn't going to last forever. Dr. Jim Hamilton has authored many books and scholarly articles. He currently serves as the preaching pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church. He blogs at jimhamilton.info. And we're looking today at the Book of Psalms through the lens of his two-volume commentary. This is a very, very significant work. A lot of effort and research went into it. What are we to make, though, of the Messianic Psalms? I think of Psalm 16 or 18 or 40 or 41, part of me wants to ask God, but not disrespectfully, why aren't they clearer at times? Some of them quite obvious, some of them not. Yeah, those are great questions. Um, The way that I approach the Psalter is the way that I think 
uh, someone like Paul most likely would have encountered the Psalms. And I think this would go also for John and the author of Hebrews and the other authors of the New Testament. I think they likely would have started with Psalm 1 and sung or chanted their way through the Psalms. And I think they probably would have done this so frequently that they would have memorized the Psalms in sequence. Hmm. And that sets up a situation where you definitely have aspects of David's historical experience in a psalm like Psalm 16, but you also have a a psalm like Psalm 2 near the beginning, Mm -hmm. which is setting the trajectory for the rest of the Psalter. So that if we read Psalm 16 in sequence with a psalm like Psalm 2, then we know that we're, we're dealing with the Lord's anointed. And I think we begin to develop this sense that what David is describing about his own experience, he understands as a kind of type or prefiguring, foreshadowing portent of what he expects to take place in the life of the seed that God promised to raise up from his line. And so I think that if we come to embrace this typological approach to the Psalms, what Peter, what Luke presents Peter saying about Psalm 16 in Acts 2, for instance, will make a lot more sense to us. You know, as I'm listening to this conversation with you, I'm, I'm in my own mind going, maybe maybe I've got it backwards. Maybe the real starting point is Messiah is all over the Psalms. It's just that he allows the weaving of contemporary issues, contemporary in the sense of in David's day or whoever's day that's writing, you know, their stuff being specifically presented. So it's not that, that God interrupts the Psalms to inject messianic prophecies, but that the whole thing is really about him and uh, these other things are added as well. What do you say to that? I think that's exactly right, and I would be so bold as to extend that out to the rest of the Old Testament, Mm. so that, for instance, when we encounter a figure like Joseph in Genesis, what we're really seeing, I think, is an anticipation of this son born to Israel, who is the seed of Abraham, and thereby seed of the woman, and he rises up, and even though he's afflicted by his brothers, and thrown into a pit, and sold into slavery, and so forth, he's eventually exalted to bless all the nations of the earth in the famine. And that type is kind of repeated with Moses, who is likewise rejected by the people of Israel, but then eventually he's exalted to a place where he delivers Israel. And I think David saw similarities between himself and folks like Moses and Joseph, and he understood that God had promised to raise up a seed from his line. Hmm. And I think David expected that these patterns, which it's as though they begin to be woven together with in dynamic relationship with the promises so that the patterns and the promises begin to mutually work off of one another. And I think David expected uh, what was typified in the lives of Joseph and Moses and in his own experience to be recapitulated and fulfilled in the promised one. You're listening to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Our guest, Dr. Jim Hamilton, He's professor of biblical theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and preaching pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church. He's the author of this commentary on the Psalms we're talking about today. Let me ask you about Psalm 93. I find it a brief, comforting psalm, but I've struggled a bit with the way it ends. If I can, I'm going to try and quote it here. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, O Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. 
mightier than the thunders of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days, O Lord. Now, that last verse, holiness adorns your house for endless days, O Lord, initially struck me as being almost out of place. Mm. And, and I guess maybe because I equate the word holiness with sinlessness, which is true, but I think I've forgotten that at its essence, holiness means set apart. So what the verse might really be saying is God can do all these things, these wonderful storm-calming miracles, because he is so special, so set apart. Is that a better rendering of that passage? Yeah, I think you're moving in the right direction. I would also be inclined to think that, you know, the house of the Lord, the temple, and here I'm following people like G.K. Beale who have, who have argued these kinds of things. I'm applying what Beale has argued about the, the temple to the references to the house of the Lord in the Psalms. Beale has argued that the temple is really a symbolic representation of the cosmos, of the creation. So that in the way that in our culture, we represent the world with a globe or maybe a a wall map of the six continents with Mm -hmm. the seas around them or something like that. In ancient Israel, if you had asked them, what does the cosmos look like? If they were in Jerusalem, they would point at the temple and say, it looks like that. And so I think these references to creation in Psalm 93, the ESV renders the term that you quoted as seas, as floods, and then you have the thunders and the waters and and all of these things, it's almost as though the whole creation is God's cosmic temple and holiness befits God's cosmic temple. I think this would fit with the idea that God created all things good in the Mm -hmm. beginning and he intended man to live out his righteousness in the creation. And he is at work to bring about a situation where we will inhabit a purified and holy cosmic temple. And so, you know, at the end of Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven, it's a perfect cube. It's as though the new city is uh, the holy of holies, and the whole creation has become the cosmic temple, and thus no unclean things will be found there. Some of Christianity's greatest names have struggled with depression. Martin Luther, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, to name a few. But as you read David's portion of the Psalms, you must at least wonder if he didn't struggle with depression some. How do you react? Yeah, I think that David often faced persecutions, whether from Saul or disappointments and persecutions, like from his son Absalom. I mean, I can, I can hardly imagine having one of my own children rise up and try to kill me. Yeah. And then if you, if you augment with that, that not only was Absalom trying to kill his own father, he was trying to seize the very kingdom of God, which is perhaps the most satanic thing a human being could do. Hmm. And so I'm sure that this was just massively distressing to David. And in the Psalms, we see him crying out to the Lord in desperation. But as I indicated earlier, for all of the emotion that we hear in the Psalter, it's instructive, I think, that they continue to look to the Lord as the one who is able to resolve the situation, the one who hears prayer, and the one who is good and will establish good. And so that puts the cries and the the pleas in an entirely different context. These are not despairing in the sense that they're abandoning hope. No, these are cries that are informed by hope. These are cries that are saying, 
this is not the way that things are supposed to be, and I need you to set things right. And that's really, I think, the essence of biblical faith. From Moody Radio, it's the land of the book. I'm John Gager with our guest, Dr. Jim Hamilton, who's written a two-volume commentary on the Psalms. Some of us aspire to memorize some of the Psalms, and some of them come rather easily. But others, frankly, I just wrestle with. Typically, this is because, you know, maybe in some of them, there's a theme that progresses, okay, but in some, there are many chunks of almost disconnected thoughts or themes. At least that's how they strike me. You agree or or disagree? I mean, it feels to me sometimes like the writers skip around a bit. Your reaction? Yes, I think often when we come to ancient literature like this, we expect a nice linear progression Mm -hmm. as though the the movement of thought is going to flow the way that we expect it to flow. And as I've examined the Psalms, often when we run into these disconnected things that you're pointing to, I think what we're dealing with is an ancient literary structure called a chiastic form where perhaps the first thought will exactly match the last thought, and then the second thought will correspond to the second to last thought, and then however many other layers you're going to have down to this central turning point. But as you move through the layers or the perhaps the panels or the, the steps of this chiastic structure, it can seem that we're dealing with something disjointed, and then we can be surprised as we come to something later in the psalm that seems to repeat something earlier in the psalm. But once we know the literary structure, it's almost as though we, we understand the rationale or the logic for the arrangement of the thoughts. Well, a fascinating conversation. Wish we had time for much more. If you're into the Psalms, and you should be, you've got to check out this two-volume commentary on the Psalms by Dr. James Hamilton. A link at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Thanks for the conversation, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Joy to be with you. All right, Charlie's back. He's got questions. Yours, next on The Land and the Book. Stick around. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Gager with our host, Charlie Dyer. And maybe, just maybe, this is your very first time listening. Well, you're in for a treat. A fascinating look at things that listeners are wondering about. Listeners like you, as you maybe read the headlines and wonder about prophecy, or as you read the headlines and wonder about Israel and and the Middle East itself, or as you're journeying through Scripture in a personal Bible study and you say, now, why does it really say that? That's what this segment is all about. But you know, Charlie, the uh, the new year is quickly approaching, and before you know it, 2023 will be here. What would you like your priorities to be for the coming year? And would you like a reminder to pray? And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to Land in the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image related to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar would be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life in Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, no shortage of questions here. We've got a, a, almost a backlog of them, so we're going to move quickly today, starting with Alan's question. He says, I wonder about Ezekiel 38 and 39. If the conditions were right any time soon for an Ezekiel 38 and 39 attack, how could Russia join in the attack, 
considering that their military is tied down in the war in Ukraine? Would this give Russia an excuse to redeploy their forces out of a losing conflict? I know this is speculation, but inquiring minds want to know. Yeah, Russia is currently bogged down in Ukraine. However, they do have resources they can still bring to that fight. We're starting to see some of that now. Uh, The calling up of military reserves suggests Putin is doing just that. Uh, Now, they can field a far larger number of soldiers, though it might take some time. And their air force hasn't been used extensively up to this point, but that can be brought to bear. Now, one other aspect, though, is the rapture, which could dramatically change the equation. If the rapture were to happen soon, and we don't know when it's going to take place, but I believe if it could happen soon, uh, the U.S. would immediately pull back its support for Ukraine and focus instead on the sudden chaos at home. And without U.S. support, Ukraine would struggle to stand against Russia. I also think without promised U.S. energy support, Europe might also pull back in its support for Ukraine. Uh, It's the West's modern weapons that are helping Ukraine, but Europe would be less likely to draw down their supplies if they fear the U.S. won't be there for them later. Of course, we don't know what the future holds or when the rapture will take place. But thankfully, God does. Putin isn't necessarily part of Ezekiel 38 and 39, but I do believe the area of Russia is. And perhaps a slight decline in Russia's military might is what it will take to make them more willing to form a coalition with Iran, Turkey, and Libya in this predicted future attack. Donna's question is about Genesis 49, verse 10. The prophecy there says the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Now, if Jesus is Shiloh, then where were the royal descendants in his time? The Bible only seems to speak about the Roman rulers and the priests. Well, there's several issues in this passage. Uh, Let me try to answer the one you've raised first. Uh, I believe the passage is saying that the tribe of Judah will not forfeit or somehow lose its right to rule prior to the arrival of the rightful ruler. From the time Jacob, Israel, made that prediction until David, the first ruler from the tribe of Judah, well, that was about 800 years. And even though there was no king during that intervening time, the promise remained true since the right to rule stayed with the tribe of Judah. The promise also remained true following the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem when for nearly 600 years there was no king from the line of Judah ruling on David's throne. Uh, The genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 clearly show that the descendants of the tribe of Judah from the line of David remained unbroken until the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. Now here's the second issue though. Uh, It's the meaning of the word Shiloh. While some translate it as a proper noun, Shiloh, uh, seeing that as a messianic name, others believe the Hebrew there ought to be translated instead to whom it belongs. This translation seems to be supported by the Septuagint and evidence from Qumran. However, the ultimate meaning still remains the same. The right to rule remains within the tribe of Judah until the actual king appointed by God arrives. Now, this could refer originally to David, though the ultimate fulfillment, I believe, is found in Jesus. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and this segment is about you, your questions, as you work your way through Scripture or maybe through the headlines online. Dora says, I work with a Jewish woman in her late 40s who's been struggling with cancer for 12 years. She's not a believer. She tries to practice her Judaism based on traditions. She's married to a very rigid, traditional Christian who often reproaches her for her unbelief in the Messiah. I wonder if I can point her to a book, in addition to Isaiah 53, that might help her find and accept the truth. Your help is greatly appreciated. Well, there's several Jewish ministries that have books. You know, we've talked about Life and Messiah on our program. They have several e-books that might be helpful, uh, including Who is This? Exploring the Tanakh in Search of Messiah, Reaching the Jewish People for Messiah, and 
Where is God in Fearful Times? Encouragement from Exodus. You can find those resources at the lifeinmessiah.org website. And finally, I also wrote a small book that might be helpful. It's titled, A Voice in the Wilderness, God's Presence in Your Desert Places. It's a study of Isaiah 40, and it does contain the plan of salvation. You could tell her it's written by a Christian, but that the focus of the book is Isaiah 40, one of the great passages on comfort in the Bible. Uh, The book's less than 100 pages. It's designed to help someone who's struggling, and you can find it, I think, on Amazon. Mark writes, while contemplating the bread and the wine, I was struck wondering why we drink the blood of Jesus. When they killed the lamb for Passover, they cut the throat and drained the blood. It was unlawful to eat or drink the blood of, of animals. And when Paul left Jerusalem to continue preaching to the Gentiles, he was told that Gentiles were not to drink the blood of animals. So why is the blood of Christ, the final sacrificial lamb, now lawful, encouraged, and necessary to partake of to be a follower of Christ. Charlie? Well, I don't believe we're actually eating the part of Jesus' body or, or drinking Jesus' blood when we partake of the bread and the cup. Rather, these elements are designed to help us remember that Jesus gave his body on the cross for us and that he shed his blood as the ultimate sacrificial lamb to inaugurate the new covenant. Now, I say that for two reasons. First, Jesus used metaphors and other figures of speech in the same way. He referred to himself as the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the true vine. In fact, in John 6, he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, he wasn't promoting cannibalism. He was making a bold statement about the centrality of a relationship with him that was foundational to eternal life. And the second reason I say this is when Paul explained God's intent for the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he adds one key phrase as he explains each element. He tells him to do this in remembrance of me. The purpose for the Lord's table was not to physically eat Jesus's body or drink his blood, but to remember that he physically died to pay for our sins and that his shed blood was the basis for our relationship with God. The elements are, I believe, a memorial. They're designed to remind us what Jesus did on our behalf. Silas says, we love your program, The Land and the Book, and we give thanks to God for all that you do. My question Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. Are these verses saying that the set of people mentioned here will never be saved, even after repentance? Are they hopeless? Yeah, I'll start by saying this is a difficult passage for everyone, so bear with me here. I'm going to go into a little bit of detail. I don't believe the passage is saying that those who repent can't be saved. Rather, it's saying that these individuals, whoever they might be, are at a point where it's impossible for them to repent. But of course, what does that mean? Well, some believe it's saying that People who are saved can lose their salvation. But if that was what the passage is saying, then it's also saying anyone who loses his salvation can never get it back because it says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And most who believe someone can lose their salvation aren't willing to go that far. I have a second problem with that position. It's based on what Jesus said in John 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. If we can somehow lose our salvation, then What Jesus said was not correct, since some of those to whom he gave salvation could then perish. And that leads to what I think is the better interpretation. I think the writer's describing individuals who appeared to accept Jesus as their Messiah and Savior, but who, now that persecution or problems had arisen, were beginning to turn back from following Jesus. And the writer's saying that those who choose not to persevere in their faith will ultimately be showing that they never really had true faith to begin with. They had tasted in the sense that they'd actually seen the reality of what faith in God looks like as they attended services and lived among believers, but 
Having done all that, if they finally reject and turn away, they'll show they never were truly following Christ, and they'll never have that opportunity again to come to faith. Now, that position also has difficulties. One of them is trying to determine how we know when someone has finally turned away. You know, Peter denied Christ at the time of his arrest. If we'd have been there at the time, we might have concluded, well, look, he's matching the description of this person. But we know that wasn't the case. So my point is, we can't look from the outside and tell if a professing Christian has truly and finally turned from Christ, showing they were never born again. Only God can see into a person's heart. Maybe as you're listening to this conversation, uh, something has clicked for you and you said, hey, hey, I, I've got a question I'd like to ask. Well, why not ask it? Send us an email, will you? The land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next. You're going to love it. So stick with us right here. Well, we've saved the best for last. It's Dr. Charlie's devotional here on The Land and the Book, a favorite, according to many of our email folks who write and let us know what they think of the broadcast. By the way, have you done that lately? Your email is always welcome online at thelandandthebook@moody.edu. Charlie, you've uh, titled your devotional today, Lord of the Flies. Now, I read a novel by William Golding by that title, saw a movie by that title based on the book. Is there any connection between the devotional and that story? Uh, there is, John, and we'll get into that in just a second. And we're going to take a moment before we get into that devotional to hear this very important Holy Land experience. Hi, David Unger here from Cedar Lake, Indiana. I was at the Sea of Galilee overlooking this beautiful sea one morning. The evergreen trees surrounded me just like in Cedar Lake. And I stood there in quiet and peace. Maybe there were even birds. And I said, all of a sudden, I was overcome with emotion. I said, oh, my God, you've given me the same sanctuary and the same nurture that you've given your son, Jesus. How could you have blessed me so? And I'm so thankful. And I was so emotional just me and God. And then all of a sudden the cries, David, David, get your bags. The professor says, anybody not on the bus in a few moments more, he's going to get ready and go and leave them behind. So I had to dash for my bags and the journey began once again. Thank you for letting me share. Lord of the Flies. I'm kind of pondering today's devotional title. Interestingly, though, it takes us to 2 Kings chapter 1. I wonder how this all fits together. Charlie? You know, John, 60 years ago, William Golding published his disturbing novel, Lord of the Flies. The novel explored that thin veneer that separates civil society from savagery and how quickly the veneer can peel away. You know, he tells the story through the lives of a group of boys stranded on an island. And one key element in the story, which gives the book its title, is a pig's head that the boys mount on a pole as an offering to an imagined beast. But those who know the Bible know there's also an important underlying biblical thread that runs through the book. Like the Bible, the book explores the question of whether humanity is fundamentally good or fundamentally evil. And both come to similar conclusions. Even the book's title, Lord of the Flies, ultimately comes from the Bible. It's the English translation of the Hebrew word Beelzebub, which is both uh, found in the Old and New Testaments. But to understand the real meaning of that word, we need to travel to the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. The year is 852 BC, and we're standing in the palace of King Ahaziah of Israel. 
the hushed whispers and furtive glances of the palace servants quickly signal that all is not well. In fact, the mood in the palace is grim and oppressive. The man on the throne possesses all of the spiritual wickedness of his late father, King Ahab, without any of his administrative skills. His mother, Queen Jezebel, is still alive, and he's inherited her passionate devotion to the god Baal. Simply put, the land of Israel is under the control of an incompetent idolater. Actions have consequences, and it doesn't take long for those consequences to show up. King Ahaziah had ruled as co-regent with his father for a year. But then, just about a year ago, his father died, and he took sole possession of the reins of power. And how has the last year gone? Well, according to 2 Kings 1, the year saw Moab rebel against Israel. That statement doesn't mean much to us, but it spoke volumes to those living in Israel. The empire built by Omri and Ahab was starting to come apart. More than that, the rise of Moab to the east of the Dead Sea brought new threats against the tribe of Reuben, one of the ten tribes that formed the northern kingdom of Israel. The trade routes, farmland, and grazing area in that region were all sources of income for Samaria, and all were now threatened. Perhaps that's why Ahaziah is so vexed and agitated this morning. He scarcely acknowledges our presence as he rushes past, shouting, Who's causing all that noise? We cock our heads and hear a muffled sound coming from outside. We barely noticed it before, but it's suddenly become the focal point of the king's anger. He rushes to the nearby window and pushes against the wooden latticework, trying to peer down to the street below. And that's when we hear the crack of wood giving way, followed by the screams of the king. The wood from the latticework broke when the king pushed against it. No doubt the years of exposure to the elements had caused the wood to rot. It still looked strong, but the weight of the king leaning against it caused it to snap. And before he could react, the king tumbled through the opening and down onto the street below. Servants hurry outside, pick the king up, and rush him back inside the palace. He's bleeding from several cuts and appears to have broken at least one of his arms, but it's the bleeding from his ears and his hard, distended stomach that are the real cause for concern. This could be serious. Ahaziah is still conscious, but in great pain. He calls for several messengers and issues an urgent command. Go, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. There it is, Beelzebub, literally Lord of the Flies. So was the Philistine god of Ekron really called Lord of the Flies? Probably not. This is a case where the writer of the Bible makes a play on words. The god of Ekron was likely Baal-zebul, or Baal the prince. But by changing the second word from Zebul to Zebub, Baal became Baal or Lord of the Flies, a god of nothing but decay and corruption. Or as a friend of mine says, 10,000 flies can't be wrong. But why did Ahaziah send messengers to Ekron, a city of the Philistines, 45 miles to the south? After all, his mom had imported Baal worship from Sidon to the north of Israel. It seems that Ahaziah truly believed in Baal and wanted to consult Baal at a location where he thought Baal was more established, more clearly understood, and perhaps more powerful. The Philistines and the Phoenicians both worshipped Baal, but the distance from Samaria to Ekron, the northernmost city of the Philistines, was about half the distance to his mother's hometown of Sidon. To think of it in today's terms, Ekron was the nearest location of an authorized Baal dealership, and the seriousness of his wounds told him time was of the essence. The king likely assumed it would take up to two days to receive an answer. 
the rest of this day for the messengers to travel the 45 miles to Ekron and consult Baal, and at least another day to receive the answer and return home. So imagine his surprise when, just a short time later, the messengers returned. Why have you returned? the king asked. A man came up to meet us and said, Go, return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you've gone up, but shall surely die. And guess what? After a face-to-face encounter with Elijah the prophet, that's exactly what happened. Or as the Bible so succinctly puts it, So Ahaziah died, according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. Ahaziah's short reign ended with his stunningly unexpected death, and it happened because he foolishly put his trust in the Lord of the flies, rather than seeking the true God of Israel. So what lesson can we possibly learn from this gruesome encounter with the Lord of the flies? Believe it or not, I see one very important lesson for everyone listening. We need to look carefully to make sure we've made the true God of the Bible the God of our life. Ahaziah thought Baal the prince was his God, but he learned only too late that this so-called God was nothing but Lord of the Flies, the one associated with death, decay, and corruption. Baal might not be worshipped today, but other gods have arisen to take his place, the God of materialism, or wealth, or success, or power. And some pursue these gods the way Ahaziah pursued Baal. The story of Ahaziah reminds us that life is short, that actions have consequences, and that the God we choose to serve does make a difference. Wow, what an ending to that guy's life, Charlie. So unexpected and so dramatic. You know, it's one of those stories that we don't always remember from the Bible, but uh, it it has all of the drama of a Hollywood movie in it, ultimately with God showing he is in charge. Thanks for that perspective. And did you know The Land in the Book is also a podcast? Here's a quick email from Carol, who loves the podcast. She says, I just wanted to share how I came to know about your Land and the Book podcast and what a delight it is. On the way to Van Nuys, California from Los Angeles, I was traveling with a guy from Texas named David. He sat next to me and we began to chat and found each other to be believers. And I shared a podcast that I listen to daily and he shared your podcast, The Land and the Book. And I'm so grateful to the Lord for our brief encounter and the encouragement that I receive from him and now from your weekly podcast, To God Be the Glory Alone. Well, we certainly want to underscore that. If there's any good that ever comes out of this program, it's all to the glory of God. And I think the podcast might encourage you to give God glory as you learn further about the Middle East and God's plan for Israel. The podcast option is available at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Hope you'll check that out. Well, I want to say thank you to this station for providing airtime for The Land and the Book. You know, the management here has lots of options, lots of choices, and lots of pressure. So we say thanks for making room for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.